Well, good morning again. Um, as we're we're starting back up, moving towards uh, re-engaging with uh, the series that we took a, a few week break on, I need to pause for just a second before we jump in and say a few thank yous. Um, and so if, if you're a guest today, uh, just give us a second to have a little bit of a family chat here for just a second. Um, I, three weeks ago, uh, we ended up unplanned, not with you guys that weekend, um, because of the passing away of Maurice's grandmother, the matriarch and kind of the, the godly foundation of her family. And you guys were just so gracious to reach out your messages and your texts and frozen pizzas when we got off the plane. And um, just some, here's the deal. We love being a part of this church family. Um, and we love the fact that this isn't a one-sided relationship. Uh, so thank you so much for loving on our family so well um, during that loss. Um, and then some thank yous for last, the week after that, two weeks ago, um, was was the celebration of 10 years as lead pastor here and just humbled by um, by the expression of of kindness to us and the generosity. Um, we're, we're humbled by that and grateful for that. And the things that you guys wrote in your cards um, were just pretty overwhelming. And so, uh, again, thank you. And uh, we love getting to do this together. And nowhere else on earth we'd rather be. So thank you so much for that. And uh, thank you for Riata. Um, I just, that was, yeah, that's my love language. So thank you for that. Um, and then you had Brian Loveless here. Because it couldn't be a perfect day. Um <laughs> hope so bad he tunes in and sees that. Um, and so uh, I'm half the man he is. Um, what? No, I mean, like, as a... I didn't mean it that way. What do y'all mean? Please tell me somebody's sending this to him right now. I'm trying to get back at him. So, And here's the thing. There's a bunch of stuff he didn't say that was in his notes that he told me later. And uh, he was actually really gentle on me. Anyways, um, I didn't plan on saying any of that. I was just trying to say thank you and be serious. Um, and then last week, uh, as was a planned week uh, to, to be out of town, I was leading um, a pastor's retreat up in Oklahoma uh, with the organization that we support called Replenish. And um, I was in Colorado, not Oklahoma. Sorry, I looked at Stan Wood. <laughs> And thought of Oklahoma. Um, sorry. Yeah, whatever. Um, or later. Um, so anyways, last week, Neil uh, spoke for us on uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, being transformed by the work of God in our lives, which is uh, in the heart of this series that we uh, ended up taking this unexpectedly long break from from John chapter 4, my favorite passage of scripture and uh, favorite story in all of the scriptures. And uh, I, before we jump back in, I would remind you what I said at the beginning of this series, and that is we're going to start with a real central focus on the text and then zoom backwards, which is usually the opposite of how you treat a text. Uh, we intentionally started off uh, with the, the narrow focus or the central focus, this theology of worship in the center of John chapter 4 and uh, verse number 23, which says, The hour is coming and is now here. That is the language of transformation. That's the language of something's different and will never be the same again. That, that God is changing something in the lives 
of the human race. The hour is coming is now here where the true worship errs. Remember the Budweiser frog? Yeah, that this is a distinct group of people. That this is not some abject, uh, abject conversation about worship. This is about men and women, the true worshipers that we're all worshipers. We're all worshiping something. And it's possible to even attempt to worship the God of the Bible and it be something less than true worship. The true worship worshipers will worship the father. Their worship will know where it belongs to the only one who's worthy. We've already talked about that and sung about that this morning. That these true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth with our internal affections and our mental attention that our hearts and our minds would be engaged to exist for the glory of God. That our feelings and our focus, our hearts and our minds would orient around the person of God for his glory and for his renown. And it says that the Father is seeking For such people to worship him. The God who upholds the universe by the word of his power is looking for something. And he's not looking for that because he's insecure or because he needs anything from us. He is looking for that because he's good. And he knows that when our lives orient around him, they will have meaning and life and joy and fulfillment only. And so in his goodness, he's looking for such people. To orient their lives around him. This is the heart of worship transformed. And what I believe with all my heart is worship will continue to be transformed until that great day. Until we all become like him, our worship is in a remodeling project. We're in a renovation, right? This remodeling that we've been in all summer long that's still not done and lights are still not hung and whatever. The pandemic has slowed stuff down. But there is no renovation that's been slowed down more than the human race. We are lifelong renovation projects that he's continuing in his mercy and in his kindness and in his patience to transform us to become truer worshipers for our good and for his glory. So we're that's the central focus. We're going to zoom back out this morning and look at some of the setting of that. So I encourage you to, to grab your Bible this morning. If you do not have a Bible, there is one underneath the seat in front of you. It's good to get to say that again. Uh, there should be one underneath the seat in front of you in most of the room today. And if you do not own a Bible, please let that be our gift to you today. Uh, we'd love for you to hang on to that. We invite you to join with us in our tradition as we hold up our Bibles and we declare this together across the room this morning with some conviction. Here we go. The Bible is the word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind. And give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Thank you so much. You can turn to John chapter number four. If you're using one of those Bibles from the seat in front of you, it's page 835, 835. Gospel of John chapter number four. We're going to start at the beginning of this chapter. We're going to read a good bit of the text this morning. We'll end up really just kind of parking in, in one area of it, but I think it's important to get the setting that we were focused in here for these first few weeks of this study. Verse number one. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself didn't baptize, only his disciples, he left Judea 
and departed again for Galilee. I don't believe there's a wasted word in God's word. All of this is important and significant. Where Jesus was leaving is important and where Jesus was heading is important because of what is said in verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria. I am not in a position to argue with John the Apostle. But no, he didn't. From our perspective, he did not have to pass through Samaria. As a matter of fact, it's bizarre that he did. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Verse number five, he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his favorite son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey. Don't you love that the son of the living God knows what it feels like to be weary? That has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about this morning. But what a beautiful thing. He was wearied from his journey. He was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. That does not mean six o'clock. That means about six hours since the sun came up. It's around noon. Verse number seven. This will be the heart of our time together this morning in the text. A woman from Samaria at, at this sixth hour came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. It's interesting. I remember, again, if, if you don't know my story, I grew up in church. My dad was a pastor. Um, I heard most of these Bible stories uh, before I was old enough to remember when I first heard them. I don't remember not knowing a lot of these stories. And I remember specifically the way that this text read. There's several parts of this text that always just sounded really weird to me. Kind of like Jesus telling a stranger, give me a drink. Right? I just encourage you when you go to lunch today and your server comes to your table, please don't say, I just came from church, give me a drink. That's rude, right? But this is common for this setting. Let's not forget we're not uh, reading a, a blue-haired, uh, I mean a, a blonde hair or blue hair. We're not reading a, a blue-eyed, blonde-haired Jesus, American Jesus here. This was a common way to say, give me a drink. Uh, verse, <laughs> he wasn't blue-haired either. Um, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. This is why he asked her for a drink or told her. Verse number nine, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? So twice we see this description of her once by John and then once by herself, a woman of Samaria. And then here we have one of the greatest understatements in all of the scriptures. For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. It's way worse than that. We'll circle back there in a minute. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and if you knew who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink. Man, if you just knew who Jesus was, oof, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, who do you think you are? <laughs> Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty Again, 
But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. That'll be the heart of next week, Lord willing, where we'll park. The water that I give, that I will give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sign me up. Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, go. I have no husband. She hoped that would end the conversation. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband for you've had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. You think? And then she tries to change the subject into the theological arguments about worship. And Jesus speaks those words that are the center point of this whole series. Jesus says, I'm on the scene. Everything changes. The hour is coming and is now here. The greatest theological exposition of worship in all of the Bible, I believe, is found in John chapter 4. That's important. Uh, one of the things that my favorite author, Paul David Chip, says all the time is that the scripture is not arranged by topic, no matter how much we wish it were. It would be so great if the Bible were organized as a concordance or a topical dictionary, but it's not. And as we study the different moments where we learn about worship, nothing is more clear and transformational than this moment, which is what makes the setting so important. The moment in which Jesus teaches us the most we can learn anywhere about the purpose of creation, namely worship, is in this moment. With this person and at this place. So circle back to verse number seven again. Here's what we see about her. A woman. A woman. Might not seem weird to us today, but if we could understand how the world worked in that moment. And by the way, not that long ago in our world as well. Women were seen as inferior. As unimportant. As unintelligent. And as unworthy, a good Jewish man would not discuss theology with his own wife. Does that sound like the heart of God to you? The answer is no, gentlemen. The answer is no. That does not sound like the heart of God. No. At this moment in history, though, that is the way the world worked. And so Jesus does what he does best and shocks the world's systems with something greater and with something better. The greatest theological teaching on the topic of worship is with a woman. By the way, the repeated story in the Gospels is Jesus speaking life and dignity and value and worth over marginalized women. One of the reasons that the systems of the world rejected the person of Jesus, were threatened by the person of Jesus, is because of the honor that he showed women. Praise God. A woman might seem 
insignificant to us. And by the way, it's interesting that she's nameless in this story. But isn't that what Jesus does? He walks into the nameless face in the crowd and changes their life. A woman. What else do we know about her? She's from Samaria. So what's the big deal? Again, something that's difficult for us to understand in the setting of that day. The Apostle John here gives this little parenthesis. By the way, there's not actually parenthesis in in Greek, but he's like, P.S. The Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Such a nice way to say the Jews hated Samaritans, resented them, were disgusted by their existence. The greatest Jewish leaders of the day in this moment of Jesus believed that the Samaritans were beneath them in human value because they were Samaritan. They had polluted the purity of the race. Sounds familiar, right? We went to war as a planet over this ideology, right? And the reality is not just that they didn't deal with Samaritans. They didn't acknowledge their existence. It's the whole you're dead to me kind of a thing. And so if a normal, typical, honorable Jewish person were to travel from Judea to Galilee, they would not head straight north. If you have a good paper Bible and if you happen to look in the back at your maps, you'll see that Judea is at the south, Galilee is at the north, and right in between is Samaria. All they had to do was hop on 35W and sit in traffic. Can I get a witness in the house of the Lord? And eventually, they would arrive at Galilee. But what a good Jewish person would do is they would take I-20 East to the George Bush and head north through Grand Prairie and then hop on 183 and come through HEB and then get on 35W and head north. They would... (laughs) You ever heard the phrase... Going around your butt to get your elbow. I know that's like a super. Have you ever heard that before? Like, or you can just do this. Like, nobody ever said that to you? If you're making something difficult for yourself, tomorrow when you see a coworker doing something difficult, you can just say, I have a word from the Lord from church yesterday. <laughs> don't go around your butt to get your elbow. Anyways, kids, don't say the word butt. Um, They would go around their Jewish, no, um, they would travel the whole around so that they didn't step foot on that real estate. Do you know what's possible for the people of God to have blind spots of racism in their life? Like the chosen people of God, the one on whom his promise rests are capable of having blind spots thinking they are right 
Where they marginalize a person just because of their ethnicity. Did you know that that can exist among the people of God? The fact that Jesus asks for a drink from her actually honors her. Jesus offered her some dignity in that moment. She assumed Jesus hated her because of her ethnicity, but Jesus assumed that she had value because she bore the image of God. Her confusion in that moment is glorious. What's wrong with you? You're different. And the beauty of that moment is Jesus is going to offer her this hope. And it starts with simply treating her like she exists. She's a woman from Samaria who came to draw water. But she did not just come to draw water. There's two Significant thing, she came to draw water alone, which is historically significant. That's, that's not how a woman would go to the well to draw water. It was not wise or safe or common for her to be alone. And then she's doing so at the noon hour, at the sixth hour. And there, there's some confusion among theologians as to whether we make too much of a big deal about this. But typically it's considered historically, we think, that most Women would go to draw water together with their group, their friends, in the morning before it was too hot in the day and at the evening when it wasn't the heat of the day. Why is she alone? And the answer is because she is an outsider. She's an outcast among her own people. She has a reputation. She has been marginalized among her own people. And what we know as we read the rest of the text is this conversation of you've had five husbands and now you're living with a sixth man that you haven't even bothered to get married to. And, and, and again, I told you as a kid, I always heard this, I think, incorrectly. One is it always sounded weird to me that Jesus said, give me a drink. And then it always sounded strange to me as a kid that Jesus set her up. Go call your husband. Oh, come on, Jesus. That's not cool. Oh, but he was up to something like he always is. And just like he is in your life too. And what he's up to is never to shame you. What's interesting about this idea that she's had five husbands, let's be clear, we we assume they did not all die. We don't believe she's been a widow five times over. Believe that she's had five failed marriages is the implication of the text. But do you know that women, remember how we started off here? They were devalued. They were dishonored. In Jewish culture, it was incredibly difficult for a woman to initiate a divorce. If she's been divorced five times, it's highly likely that she's been rejected and cast aside five times. And again, growing up, I was always taught, you know, she was this adulterous woman. And maybe that's why she was divorced five times. But we don't know. Let's be careful not to make the text say what we don't know to be true. All we know is she's been cast aside five times. And is now living with a sixth man. Those of us who grew up playing the game of basketball, you're 
you're trying to accomplish a couple things in your life. If, if you're trying to climb the ranks on your basketball team, your ultimate goal is to be one of the starting five, right? And while you're earning your way into the starting five, you want to win the sixth man award. If you haven't earned your way to the starting five, you want to be the guy off the bench who makes the biggest impact on his team. Because maybe if you win the sixth man award this season, next season you'll earn your way into the starting five. But Jesus creates a whole new category. He's the seventh man to walk into her life. And it's different. She was never the same again. We'll look more at that in a couple weeks. Jesus steps into this story of rejection and shame this desperate woman who's been cast aside. And the first thing Jesus does is he offers her dignity. And then he offers her deliverance. He offers her humanity and then offers her himself. He offers her love and then the promise of life, living water. He'll never thirst again. This desperate woman. But the great thing about this story is not just that it stands alone. It's that this story is set in an amazing trilogy. All great stories are told in trilogies, right? Star Wars, Austin Powers. No, I'm just kidding. This is the second in a trilogy of stories. And what's on either side of this moment and this story is such a beautiful picture of who Jesus is. It's such a beautiful picture that if we can see it, I believe our worship will be transformed. A woman from Samaria drawing water alone at the noon hour. Well, what was the encounter Jesus had before that? John chapter 3 and verse number 1. Now there was a man. Okay, this sounds more like it. There was a man of the Pharisees, the most respected elite religious group there is, which were only males, so it's super redundant that John would say, a man of the Pharisees, it's from the Department of Redundance Department. One person got that, or else it just wasn't near as funny as I thought it was. There's a man of the Pharisees, but he has a name. Nobody wrote her name down. But everybody knew Nicodemus. He was a ruler, and he was Jewish. That's what we know about him. So clearly, he's not as desperate as she is, and yet here he is, Gathered with Jesus in the dark of night with nothing but questions. Jesus says, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Jesus, what do you mean? I'm going to 
re-enter a womb and be, that didn't even make any sense to me. Jesus says, you've got to be born of the Spirit. He said, Jesus, how can these things be? That dude brought nothing to the table but desperate questions. Yes, he was a man and the man. But he was just as desperate as she was. Jesus encounters this powerful religious leader. So what about after this? After this woman from Samaria drawing water in the middle of the day. Back to John chapter 4. We skip past this story. to Verse number 46. Jesus is encountered at Capernaum by, we don't have this guy's name, he's just called an official. Which is an interesting word. It does not appear uh, other places in the New Testament, but it's a word that's connected to the same word, king. This is a guy who's got so much power, he's in the king's court. This is the White House chief of staff. This is a powerful person. And what do we know about him? His son was ill to the point of death. Is there anything more desperate as a parent than when our kids are sick? Is there anything more hopeless and more helpless when you can't fix your kids when they're sick? And his son is sick to the point of death. Nicodemus was this great religious ruler, but he was desperate for help. This official was this powerful political ruler. And he was desperate for healing. And then now we go to the center of the story. Verse number seven, there was a woman from Samaria. She was desperate for hope. Desperate for dignity. Desperate for life. So do you get the trilogy? You get the setting? The religious ruler got it all together. The political ruler, powerful person, nameless outcast, right in the dead middle of the story. And look what Jesus offers these three incredibly different people. You ready? The most famous, most well-known verse in all the Bible is spoken in the dark of night to Nicodemus. God so loved the world that he gave. And then he says he gave me, knowing what that would cost him. Right? This isn't the memorization verse from his childhood like it was for most of us. Jesus knows what this gift will cost him. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? Eternal life. Nicodemus just wanted some help with his questions. Jesus offers him life. What about that powerful political leader, that man in the king's court? What about the official's son? Jesus speaks to him in verse 50. Go home. Your son will Live. 
the promise of life. And by the way, if you keep reading in John chapter 4, it says that as the man turned in faith to head towards home, his son was healed. In that moment. And then what does Jesus offer our friend at the well? This water that will spring up within, welling up to eternal life. So here's the beauty of this trilogy. To the person who pretends to have it all together or looks like they have it all together or has all the right religious answers or the person with all the political influence and the power to get things done. He's the guy you call when you need something done. And to the nameless outcast who's been marginalized and whose life is nothing but obviously broken, he offers the same thing. Life in himself. It's the promise of life. He offers it to the outcast, to the religious, to the political, to the weak and the powerful. He offers the gift of life. That's what we call the gospel. So we started off this morning talking about the idea of worth, the idea of value. We said that the word worship, right, was Used by the Puritans, they called it worth-ship. It's assigning value. It's determining what's worthy. That's the repeated theme of this series, that worship is just assigning value to something. And here's what I want you to hear with your hearts. Worship is us expressing value to God, His worth, right? But here's the truth about gospel-centered worship. Our value is simply a response to his value. That he valued busted, broken people who come to the table with nothing but need. He shows us value. Worship is a response of value to value. We value him because he valued us. And worship is the only natural response to that gospel reality. Which means this, the motivation for true worship is the gospel and the gospel alone. The motivation to worship is that God loved the world. The motivation to worship is that God grants life to people, regular broken people. So the motivation to worship in spirit and in truth is not the setting, is not the lighting, is not that we like the songs that were picked. It's not if the musicians were on point. The motivation to worship is the glory of the gospel of grace that grants us life in Jesus. It means that the motivation to worship isn't whether we're feeling it or not. The motivation to worship isn't whether our marriage is sinless or not. Nope, she's married to you. It's going to have some sin in it. The motivation to worship isn't our kids are perfect. The motivation to worship isn't my bank account looks great. The motivation to worship isn't my jobs, everything I ever wanted it to be, and I'm fully fulfilled in my flesh. The motivation to worship is that we have a glorious God who offers life to the helpless, the hopeless, the hurting, those in need of healing. That's the motivation. And the beauty of that motivation is it's true when everything else is sideways. It's true whether we feel it or not. 
And if that's the thing that unites us, if that's the thing that brings us together, that's the healing of the division of the world. Do you realize the setting we see here? They have no dealings with the Samaritans. Do you get that? They blocked them on Facebook. Another beauty in this, in this text could be that they all come together. Nicodemus walks into the same story and the, the official just shows up a little sooner into the story. And there's the three of them together. One is wearing a anti-vaccine shirt that says, don't tell me what to do. And the other's wearing a, if you're not vaccinated, you don't love people shirt. And then the poor woman standing in the middle going, how about you make your own decisions and leave me alone? Right? Nicodemus shows up with his mask on. And the official shows up and says, don't make me wear a mask. And the beautiful thing that unites them is not their individual preferences or views or freedoms. What unites them is life in Christ. The hope of the world is that in this moment, the church would rise up above the division and say we are united on a greater cause than our politics or our medical views or our racial division. We are united in the greatest force in the universe, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And instead, the world seeing us just as divided, if not more sometimes, than the world at large. And here's the thing about finding my value in my political power. My value and my religious views, my value and my ethnicity, the common denominator and all of that is my. Division is the worship of me. I'm divided from you because whatever I believe about me is better than you. That's the worship of self. This is a worship problem. Make no mistake. This has nothing to do with politics. This has nothing to do with a pandemic. This has nothing to do with race. It has everything to do with worship. We are lovers of self more than lovers of God. And what the world needs to see is the people of God who've experienced life. Rise up and be different and go, if you knew who it was who I've met. (laughs) This is the hope of the world. There's not a single political system that can fix the racial division of our nation. By the way, the fact that we read that kind of racial grossness, that kind of prejudice, this long ago is a very helpful reminder that racism is not a new problem or an American problem. And it also reminds us that that thing in us that says this isn't how it's supposed to be is right. The problem is I think some of us long to see it healed and fixed and redeemed here when the fact is that thing in you that cries for it to be better is actually the part of you that knows that we long for a better kingdom. (laughs) When everything that is wrong will finally be made right. 
The gospel is what unites us. The gospel is the motivation. I I share with you that this past week I was leading this pastor's retreat in Colorado, middle of nowhere, Colorado, about 30 minutes outside of Steamboat Springs. And one night after dinner, I was driving these pastors back to the retreat. And as we're driving back, it was a long drive. Most of the drive isn't even on a, a paved road. It's on a dirt road. All of a sudden, as I'm driving, I see this huge something in the middle of the road. And I can see that there was a, a truck that was coming this direction that's also stopped beyond the thing. And I slow down enough and my eyes focus enough that I realize it is this giant elk. Big old bullwinkle looking head. Standing in the middle of the road. I'm like, wow, that's majestic and terrifying. And then all of a sudden the guys go, wait, look, there's more. So I kind of turn the car to where it's shining out into the field. And the guys lost count at 30. It's this whole huge family of these majestic elk. It's amazing. Like it was this amazing moment, right? And I noticed that the truck is now Captain Elk bringing up the rear. has finally gotten off the road. And the truck starts to move my direction. So I turn our vehicle back to our lane. And we're going to head back to the retreat. And it's this, it's probably in the whole week I was there, I think maybe I saw five cars ever. That's how middle of nowhere we are, right? This old busted up pickup truck comes by. I notice that the driver has the window down is an elderly lady who leans her head out the window and screams the word, idiot. And it kept driving. It's like, I don't know. You were stopped. I stopped. I, didn't, I wasn't blocking you. I have no, like to this moment, I don't know. The rental car had California plates. Maybe she just profiled me. She's yelling, idiot. Which, of course, the group of pastors found to be the highlight of the evening. And I thought, I left the Metroplex and came to the middle of nowhere and still experienced road rage. I saw five cars in six days and one of them yelled at me. Because whether you live in the country or you live in the city, the common denominator is we're hurting people. What we're seeing is a whole lot of lashing out right now. We're seeing our natural natural inclination to turn on one another. But there's hope. And his name's Jesus. And if we've encountered life in him, we have a reason to worship in spirit and in truth.